it makes us ask, well, what must we do to be like that? That is, how might we think of the future and acting on behalf of uh, our children and grandchildren and, and making the best world that we can or helping to shape and helping to preserve and helping to pass down to them what is valuable. And I think we, we it's looking into the past that helps to remind us of our obligations towards the future. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Well, I don't think I'm telling you anything new when I say that we live in a society, a culture, if we can call it that, where connectivity, instant, immediate access to to endless choices is really everything to us. We so often assume that what is now and what is new is better. And so we look at the past, well, if we're honest, with a little bit of suspicion, perhaps a lot of suspicion. Sometimes we even look at the past with universal judgments, judgments that sometimes bring along with them quite a bit of disdain. Many different authors have put their finger on this. Some have called it an imperialism of the present. Some have called it a tyranny of the present. Or some have just referred to it as a presentism. But what's what I find so ironic about our age is that with all of our fixation on the now and and what's new and and that connectivity that has to be so immediate, and even that disdain for the past, we actually are not that much better in the end. In fact, sometimes we're left with quite a bit of anxiety. Sometimes it can even lead to discouragement. Well, Could it be that we need a new perspective on the past? Could it be that the past might actually help us in the present and perhaps maybe even say something about our future? One author that I have so appreciated, uh, not not just for his writing, but the insights he brings to writing is none other than Alan Jacobs. He's written a new book called Breaking Bread with the Dead. A Reader's Guide to a More Tranquil Mind, published with Penguin Press. One of the things I appreciate so much about this book is that as he breaks bread with the dead, so to speak, he brings us really to a new vantage point, liberating us to consider perhaps a a foreign world, a whole new world for some. And he asks the question, could we actually have a conversation with those before us that could give us greater personal density? Could it be that the past might actually move us beyond our narrow and and very limited time frame to a bigger time, one that's not so transitory, one that doesn't change as much, one that gives us actually a broader perspective? And could it be that as we come into conversation with those who we may agree or disagree with, we actually are taught in the process to have a disposition of generosity, perhaps even a disposition of love. 
Well, as Christians, this actually is very related to what we learn from the Christian faith. Someone once said, we should love not only God, but in loving God, we should love our neighbor. And I have a suspicion that Alan Jacobs' new book might just help us do that. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on the Credo Podcast. It's great to talk with you. You know, I I think one of the quotations from your book that caught my attention immediately, uh, this right in the opening uh, of of your book, Breaking Bread with the Dead, is, uh, well, this might surprise some folks because you, you, you really quote a lot from literature uh, of the past, but here you actually bring Twitter <laughs> right into the opening pages. <laughs> and uh, I, I love this because you go to Jason, uh, Jason Gay, who uh, made this really one sentence statement that went viral. Uh, and he says, there's a guy, he's, he's sitting in a coffee shop observing, and he says, there's a guy in this coffee shop sitting at a table, not on his phone, not on his laptop, just drinking coffee like a psychopath. <laughs> and yeah. I couldn't help but think, uh, in so many ways, this sums up our present moment. And uh, along with this, you, you go on to describe how we, we seem to be characterized by uh, what you call an addiction or maybe an, uh, an addiction to adrenaline that uh, has a lot to do with this rush. You call it a rush of connectivity. But the irony is that as much as we think we're so connected, we actually tend to be haunted, if I could say that, haunted even by uh, quite a bit of anxiety. And so you take us back to uh, someone like L.P. Hartley, uh, and think of his novel, The Go-Between, where he actually adds a, a bit of a different insight when he says the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Now, I'd like to just kickstart our conversation at, right at that point and, and just talk about what are you noticing, maybe even from your own life or just as you observe the culture, especially in, in the humanities, which is where you live and breathe. Uh, what are you noticing about what you call the, the tyranny of anxiety and and what does that have to do with a bit of our attitude, perhaps, towards the past, this foreign country? So I, I, think, I think one of the most valuable things about the past is that they do things differently there, that they behave in ways that we don't expect, and they behave in ways that uh, our neighbors don't usually behave. And the other really valuable thing about the past is how often they are like us. It's in some ways they're different. In some ways they're the same. And you never know when you're going to run into one of those. I've, I've had that experience also when I do travel in foreign countries. I remember many decades ago, I spent a summer teaching at a seminary in Nigeria and I was teaching uh, pastors from Nigeria. And, and I would have these moments where I would just be rejoicing in how immediately and completely we understood one another as <laughs> as brothers in Christ. And and then I would have a moment when they would say something that I, that just came out of left field to me that I couldn't connect with at all. And 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 going back and forth like that was a kind of an exhilarating experience. Um, and 
reading the past is like that as well. It seems to me it it shakes up our usual responses. We get these kind of habitual responses that we make to the people around us because we kind of know what they're going to say before they say it. Um, and we plan our response before they say it. Uh, and it all plays out in an almost scripted way. Mm. But when we're encountering the past, we are sometimes surprised by this connection that we form. And other times we're surprised, wow, these people are really different. I don't think that way. I don't know anybody who thinks that way. Why did they see things like that? And and that that interactivity, that surprising interactivity kind of, kind of puts us uh, out of step a little bit, but that's in a good way because then our reactions are not as automatic as they tend to be day to day when we're getting that kind of dopamine hit mm. from social media and everything is pretty much exactly what we expect it to be. Uh, something that we can give a thumbs up to or something that we can give a thumbs down to. But often when you're encountering the past, you're like, well, I don't know whether to give this a thumbs up or a thumbs down. I'm going to have to step back and think about it a while. <laughs> and and having to step back and think about it a while is a really incredibly useful experience for all of us to have. You know, when you are uh, observing uh, the present, but then really going back and, and engaging the past, uh, you make this claim that I find, it, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to come up throughout your book because uh, it seems to be really at the core of what you're trying to, to get at, what you're trying to argue. You make this claim that you want to, to convince those around you that um, a deeper understanding of the past can actually foster, cultivate, even, even create a greater personal density. Right. What, what, what exactly do you mean yeah. by that? And, and how do you mm -hmm. see, uh, you know, whether you're engaging, say, with a Jane Austen or the Iliad, what, how, how does this personal density uh, begin to, to right. rise to the surface? Right. Yeah. So that phrase, and in fact, in a lot of ways, the whole book emerges from my reflecting on this one phrase. It's in a it's from a novel by the uh, contemporary American novelist Thomas Pynchon. It's called Gravity's Rainbow. It was published in 1973, I believe. And um, I don't recommend it necessarily. It's an incredibly <laughs> difficult book um, and, and really becomes quite bizarre. Uh, in the last two or 300 pages, and it's about 800 pages long. So it's a big investment. But all that said, there's a character in there. He's an engineer. His name, he's a German engineer. His name is Kurt Mondaugen. And he, he uh, proclaims what he calls Mondaugen's Law. And Mondaugen's Law is uh, personal density is proportionate to temporal bandwidth, mm. which is a very engineery way to put the point. But what? But here's what he means, and he means something that I think is really accessible to all of us. He says that uh, that if you have a wide temporal bandwidth, then what? And by that he means that you're. He says the sort of the size of your now that you're able to think uh, 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 of of maybe two or three centuries either side of you as part of your now part of the world that you're living in and and the 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 more expansive your sense of now is the more you're able to recognize these people from maybe 300 or 400 or 500 years ago as as being your neighbors as being like you if you can do that 
he says, it gives you greater personal density. And, and, and I think what he means by personal density is something like this. You know how the Apostle Paul warns us against being blown about by every wind of doctrine. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what we have in the world that we're in now is the winds of doctrine <laughs> are always blowing really hard. And they blow on social media primarily. Yeah. And, and there, so there becomes this new thing that just happened this week that now everybody is supposed to care about more than anything in the world, and everybody is supposed to have exactly the same point of view. And if all you do is live in the present, then you, get, you don't have any density that will hold you stable. Yeah when those winds start to blow and you will be blown about by every wind of, of social media doctrine, <laughs> whatever that doctrine is this week, it's going to blow you in the direction that everybody else is going. And whatever it is next week will blow you in a different direction because you won't have the personal density that'll enable you to remain firm when the winds get high. Mm. And, and Mondalgan's law says that the more you understand the the more your thinking extends into the past and for that matter into the future it would be great if we could have you know what cs lewis says that that reading old books is a great way to get us out of our own time and he said reading books from the future would be just as helpful except we can't get to them right <laughs> it's only the ones from the past that we can get to the books from the future would be equally helpful but unfortunately, we can't order them from Amazon. Um, and 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 so so as we extend our 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 sense of fellowship, our sense of neighborhood into the past, you know, one of the one of the things we do is we we start seeing the rhythms and the patterns of history, and we start seeing the ways in which people can be you know, uh, their ideas can be the most popular ideas in, in the world at one moment. And then 10 years later, they're forgotten. We see the way things go up and down. We see the th- way things change. We see that people who are very different than us in some way are nevertheless very much like us and very admirable in other ways. We, we, we get, we gather all this information that gives us better judgment of what's happening mm-hmm. because we've seen more and we've seen the ups and downs, and we've noticed the patterns, and we've connected with strange people. We are we we then have more personal density, and what that means is that when those winds of doctrine start blowing, we think, "Yeah, I've I've been here before. Mm-hmm. I know what this is like. Let me just buckle down a little bit and and wait this out." And and we we can we can practice that kind of patience. And sometimes what scripture calls long suffering and sometimes just it's a matter of just waiting and 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 then let it all blow by. And then and, and, and we can remain stable in our convictions and stable in our commitments and just from day to day, maybe this is the most important thing is stable in our emotions mm. um, so that we don't end up saying things that we regret and we don't end up damaging our relationships with other people, uh, the kind of things that can happen when you're being blown about by every wind of doctrine. And so uh, personal, so, so uh, uh, you can see then that this idea of, of, of cultivating temporal bandwidth 
as a way to increase your personal density is something that I think everybody has a good reason to do. But that really ought to resonate with our fellow Christians, it seems to me. It ought to resonate with 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 believers more than anybody else. It ought to be easy for us yeah. to see the value of this. Absolutely. You know, I can't help but think of uh, my own church mm-hmm. and, you know, I operating in, you know, an academic setting in terms of, you know, theology, but then I'm also pastoring in the local church. And one of the things I keep returning to is to say, uh, you know, to, to Christians who are very much uh, like you're talking about, very can be easily blown. Uh, sometimes it's by those winds of social media. Yeah. But sometimes it's yeah. just by the winds of life in which uh, trials right. and suffering become really quite harsh and, and uh, destructive. And uh, one of the things that I find so encouraging and I try to, to remind them of is, is to say, you know, you're not alone. <laughs> you, right. you, you actually have a great cloud of witnesses before you. Yeah. And they went through these sufferings and worse. And um, if you believe in the church and, and believe that uh, God is at work amongst his people, then, then right. don't think you're alone <laughs> in all of this. You actually, right. you actually have a right. heritage here. One of the things, right. you know, you're, you, I'm talking about, you know, my world in terms of uh, so much of the the theological discussions, and I often encounter this, even with those who are well-meaning, uh, they, they sometimes come to theology with, with an attitude or a mindset of, of a bit of a, a prejudice or a disdain towards mm-hmm. the past uh, and, and really giving priority to the present. Now, you're, you're one of the reasons I was just so pleasantly surprised, I, I got about, you know, halfway through your book, and I just thought, you seem to be seeing this in in your world of humanities as well, <laughs> and mm-hmm, it right. just made me think. Um, you know, you have this one point where you you describe um, not just this this uh, bandwidth, but you you then go on to describe the the type of mindset that uh, can close us off to breaking mm-hmm. bed, breaking bread uh, with the dead, and you describe mm-hmm. it. Um, as 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 if we're we're sort of policing, we're we're like admissions officers right. at right. some elite, yeah. you know, university, and and so we we approach history this way, in which, okay, we will read something, but really only to determine if if this person is you know part of the the good guys or the bad guys, whether they should go in the accept pile or the reject pile, and from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we start to develop really an outlook, not just on history, but but just on life. Uh, now, you actually mm-hmm. advocate something very different when you when you say, "Well, we we need to look, um, we need to look at the whole person whenever we're reading so- someone, you know, mm-hmm. and and we need to realize that our task is actually uh, far more complex than that, and and that can be a struggle, but it can also be be quite rewarding. How how is it that you, uh, I mean, when you're trying to go about this, let's just say with, uh, you know, those in the humanities who might be suspicious, you know, how do you Mm -hmm. cultivate um, not just, okay, you know, break bread with the dead, but, but also Mm -hmm. do so in a way that's generous. Yeah. 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 You know, there's, uh, there's so much to say about that. Um, One of the people that, uh, uh, that I quote in unpacking that idea as a science blogger, actually, who talks about positive and negative selection. 
and, um, and, and her point is an interesting one. She says that like, if you, for instance, if you are an admissions officer at, you know, a very elite, highly selective, uh, university, when you look at applications, you kind of get yourself into a frame of mind where you're looking for a reason to rule this person out. They may have, there may be 99 good things about them, but you're looking for the one bad thing. And then once you found that one bad thing that you throw them out and, and she talks about the ways in which that habit of negative selection is something which kind of infects our relationships with other people as well. And also our relationships with ideas or books or, you know, we, 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 we wait and wait and wait until we see the one thing that we disagree with. And then, ah, that's it. You're out, you know? And, but when you practice negative selection, the problem with that is that you then become, uh, uh, you, you, you become blind to forms of excellence or beauty or, uh, or, you know, people who can contribute to your community in really wonderful ways, even if there may be something they get wrong. And, and I think that can be, especially in our highly politicized environment where our, our political fights are so intense and there's that we have these hot button issues, you know, on which we simply cannot tolerate disagreement and we just must walk away from that person. Well, one of the things that when that happens, one of the things we're doing is losing the ability to persuade and to be persuaded. And, and, and communities don't survive very well when we lose the ability to persuade and to be persuaded. And so one of the reasons that I suggest reading works from the past is that it gives us kind of practice in dealing with people who are different than us. And it's, it's, it, it, the stakes are a little bit lower. If, if I'm reading a writer from the 18th century, that person is not going to vote in the next election. So I don't have to worry about that person choosing the wrong politician to vote for. You know, that person has a wholly different set of concerns. And and I get a kind of a chance not to practice just negative selection. You know, maybe that person says something that offends me. Well, okay, then I'll close the book and set it aside and think about it a while. And then I can come back to it later on and, and then balance that against the other things that, that that writer says that might actually be wise and worth knowing. Right. This is, uh, you know, when you talked about the cloud of witnesses a while ago, one of the things that I have said before to people who were unbelievers, who had no religious belief whatsoever, is I've really, but when they were going through difficult times, I've encouraged them to read the Psalms Mm. because there is no, there is no emotion that you can experience as a human being that isn't recorded somewhere in the Psalms. (laughs) Right. And you're going to, you're going to be, even if you're not a believer, you're going to have the experience of reading these poems written 2,500 years ago or, or more in which somebody is speaking a word that goes right to your heart and speaks directly for you, even though this is some, you know, some bizarre Israelite, you know, worshiping a God that maybe you couldn't imagine worshiping, living in a culture that you couldn't imagine living in. And nevertheless, that person can speak right to your heart. That's mm-hmm. an amazing thing when you think about it. And, and, and you're, you're going to be thankful for that. 
you're not going to necessarily believe everything that that person believes, but you're going to be thankful for the way that that person can speak a word that's a true word for you. Well, if you can do that with somebody from 2,500 years ago, you can probably do it with your neighbor also. But you just have to get yourself into a calmer frame of mind to be able to do that. You know, you've got to get yourself into a situation where you're not immediately reacting. Um, Some years ago, I was, uh, I'm not on social media anymore, but when I was still on Twitter, I remember uh, somebody said something that annoyed me and I gave a snarky reply and and he gave an even snarkier reply <laughs> coming back. And, and at a certain point in the conversation, I, I was, you know, I was, I was at my computer and uh, I looked down at my hands on the keyboard and they were shaking. Mm. I was so upset. I was shaking and I thought I've got to walk away from this. And I did, you know, I just walked away from it. And I, from that point on, I really stopped getting into it with anybody on social media and immediately got off social media altogether. And to one extent, I was ashamed of myself because I thought you were a mature Christian man. You should not be, (laughs) uh, you know, reacting this way. But everything about social media is designed to make us act that way. It is designed to push those buttons. Right. And, And I had to accept the fact that I did not have whatever it takes, whatever Christ-likeness or Christian formation it takes to be impervious to having those buttons pushed. Um, and and, and I, so I stepped away from it. And, mm. and I think that if I can step away from that, that sort of the immediate provocation of the moment and get myself into an environment where I'm reading and studying and thinking and, 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 and engaging with people from the past then I build different habits of mind, but I'm also building different habits of spirit. And then when I come back to dealing with my neighbor, I'm better equipped with patience and kindheartedness. And and I'm willing to be long-suffering. It becomes possible for me to turn the other cheek. Um, And so in that way, uh, uh, the, the, the it, regular encounters with the past can be a kind of a training for us. And I wrote this book. This book was written for a general audience. So I'm writing to my fellow citizens. I'm writing to my fellow Americans and to people of other English-speaking countries who will have gone through some of this. And I think it's going to make us better. I think breaking bread with the dead can make us better citizens, can make us better neighbors. But I also really do think that this has a lesson for our fellow Christians, that it can help to make us better Christians, too. Mm. It is an instrument that God can use to heal us from some of the, the anger and the resentment and uh, the fierceness with which we go about so much of our, our social media lives these days. And, of course, now it's, I think, increasingly bleeding over into our everyday lives. Yeah. So I think this—I I wrote this book for, you know, for, for a general readership, and, and I'd love to have everybody read it. But I, I do think it has particular lessons for my fellow Christians also. You know, one of the things I appreciate well, so much about what you just said uh, is, is just the clarity— um, of mine and the habit of mine that some of those decisions you made uh, tend to cultivate. And of course, when we're talking about 
engaging uh, with the past and the, the voices that have come before us rather than being, like, like you mentioned, just so caught up in the moment mm-hmm. and what's happening now. Um, it's not as if we're, we're naive. Uh, we're, we're not saying, right. um, you know, we, we're, we need to go back to the days when everything was, was just perfect and, and that sort of right. thing. Um, in fact, you, you have a, a, a really helpful illustration where um, you, you start engaging with uh, Kathleen Fitz, Fitzpatrick and um, mm-hmm. her idea of, of generosity and uh, from her book, Generous right. Thinking. And Generous Thinking. Ongoing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she gets at this idea of ongoing disposition, and and you tie that back into right. this discussion of personal density. But um, you you sort of use that as a as a launching pad to say, well, could it be that when we're looking uh, for that you know authentic kernel of humanity, as as you call it, could it be not so much uh, a journey that's without you know uh, problems, but but one that that actually forces us into a wrestling match. <laughs> um, and, right. and you, you right. use the illustration of, you know, Jacob who, who yep. is, <laughs> is under yeah. extreme stress <laughs> and suddenly starts wrestling yeah. with this mysterious um, person. And, and later he says, you know, he's, he's wrestled with God. How is that in some way, uh, yeah. you know, uh, a fitting um, illustration for the, not just, you know, mm-hmm. encouraging people to break bread with the dead, but but how mm-hmm. to go about it in terms of both balancing, right. you know, on the one hand, we want to come mm-hmm. to the past and learn and, and actually yeah. uh, we're not saying there's no judgment to make, um, but, on exactly. the, but on the other hand, uh, recognizing, well, as we make these judgments, okay, there may be moments we're critical, but, but it's still... Uh, like Jacob says there, you know, I'm not letting go until you give me that promise. How, how does that tr- sort of translate yeah. into to yeah. what you're talking about? Yeah. So this that that really started in an interesting place. So I, uh, you know, I teach uh, uh, I, I teach the humanities at Baylor. Uh, I teach a wide range of texts and literature, philosophy, and theology. Um. But when I was at, uh, I spent 29 years at Wheaton College in Illinois, and when I was at Wheaton College, I was in the English department and taught literature almost exclusively. And but one of my classes that I taught there was uh, literary theory, so I had to kind of prepare my students to encounter, in I, I hope and pray, uh, a genuinely Christian way. Um, approaches to literature that were very alien to them and very difficult. And one of the essays that I always had them read was an essay by a feminist critic named Patrocinio Schweikert. And, and she has this, this wonderful essay where she talks about reading certain books by canonical male authors. Hmm. Uh, For instance, she talks about reading James Joyce and, and and she says, you know, this is, there is so much sexism in these books. There is so much misogyny. Women are not taken seriously. You know, uh, it, she's thinking particularly of his book, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. So this is like a textbook of the way that uh, that that men think badly about women and respond badly to women. And then she says, 
but boy, do I love this book. <laughs> you know, she says, I love it. I, I just love it. You know, it, it, she says, I ought to hate it. I ought to hate it because it gets all these things wrong, but I love this book. And then the question is, well, then why do I love it? Why do I love it so much? What is, and, and so she's the one who coins that phrase, the authentic kernel. There is, there is somewhere down in there, you know, there's a, there's, it, it's sort of like the wheat and the chaff, right? She clears away all the chaff right. to find out that little kernel of wheat and, and the, the, that, that's good and is hearty and it's healthy uh, and it's going to feed me. Um, and, 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 and she, she thinks that it's her job to hunt for that. And, and I feel like, boy, I mean, what a great lesson for Christians also, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. is to, to not simply despise but to try to find that authentic kernel. Sometimes you're going to say, you know what, this is, there's a lot more here that is bad and destructive than is helpful, and I need to walk away from it. I do that. I do that with books. I do it with movies. I do it with TV shows. I don't deny that there's something good there, but I think what's good here is, is not sufficient for me to have to get through what I have to get through to find that good. Yeah. That's totally appropriate for us to come to that conclusion. But I think a lot of times we can come to that conclusion prematurely. And it would have been really easy for Schweiker to say, you know what, this is a sexist book. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. But she read it and she said, I, I have to admit, I love it. Let me figure out why. <laughs> and, and I just think that's a wonderful disposition. I, uh, uh, another thing I quote in that context, and I actually just taught this in, in one of my great text classes at, at Baylor yesterday, we're reading uh, Frederick Douglass's narrative of the life of an American slave. And, and I gave my student a handout, my students, a handout of a passage from a speech he gave in 1852 uh, called the, some, it has different titles, but uh, the usual title is something like this, the meaning of the 4th of July to a slave. Mm. And, and he, he, he's, he's speaking to an all white audience and, and ultimately what he wants to say is this, this holiday is a holiday for you, but it's not a holiday for me because so many of my people are enslaved. It right. was a declaration of independence, but not for them yeah. and not for me, even though I've escaped from that slavery. But there's this passage at the beginning where he's talking about the founders uh, 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 of the American Republic. And he says, he says, I'm, uh, he says, I'm compelled by my experience as a slave, not to view them in the most favorable light, because mm. decisions they made, or in some cases, decisions they failed to make, led to my being born into slavery and led to my being beaten and, you know, treated with horrific cruelty and millions of other black people the same. And he says, and then he says, but they were great in their day and their generation. He said, and he just goes on this kind of long list of the virtues of the founders. He says they were men of peace, but they would not, uh, uh, they would not accept uh, injustice mm. uh, and call that peace. They cared about their own, their country more than they cared about themselves. They were, you know, I mean, he, and he goes off on this sort of long list of all of the things that were great about them. He says they were great. 
He says, rarely in the history of the world has there been such a collection of gifted people at, uh, living in one nation at one time. He praises them you know, to the skies. He says, but they were not perfect. <laughs> and, and they felt short in ways that have been incredibly costly for people like me. And I just, I love how charitably he deals with that. He doesn't run from the judgment. He has to make the judgment. But he's not going to he's not going to let his judgment of their vices blind him to their extraordinary virtues. And and, and the way that he puts those things together, I think, is just such a model, um, a model for all of us. And uh, I, I, that that's something that I'm always striving for. I don't want I don't want when I see something that I that I love or admire, I don't want to be blinded to its fault. And when I see something that I dislike or despise, I don't want to be blinded to its virtues. Right. Uh, and, and I think that it's, it's sort of interesting that this, you know, ex-slave Frederick Douglass and this feminist literary theorist, <laughs> Patrocinio Schweikert, are people who really gave me as a Christian lesson yeah. in, uh, in, in, in how to pursue that. You know, what I find so uh, telling about that list by Douglass is that well, first of all, uh, what humility to, to I mean, given yeah. his context, I mean, what, yeah. uh, I mean, I don't think any of us would blame him for, for not in that moment exhibiting humility, given what mm-hmm. his people endured. So what humility, exactly. first of all, um, yeah. but, but secondly, um, what, his words that even that list he, he, he gave there. Uh, that that was used, whether he knew it would be or not. Uh, it certainly has been used then to transform the future, <laughs> exactly uh, in in ways that maybe he dreamed of, but but could not right. fathom at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Which which brings really brings me to you know we've been talking about the past and and how it can help us both personally and then you know more in terms of a people. But uh, you, you also bring in the future to say, well, mm-hmm. there should be a certain responsibility for our words. I, I love how you go to uh, Wendell Berry and his mm-hmm. essay, uh, Standing by Words. Yep. And he has this um, moment where uh, he goes to those projectors of the Grand Academy of Legato mm-hmm. in, in uh, Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Mm-hmm. And um, you describe this as, you know, here, here you have these men, they appear to be meaningfully related to the future, right? As if mm-hmm. they are the future, but in fact, they're wholly self-absorbed. And I, I just stopped at that point and thought, that's, that's us <laughs> that, yeah, in absolutely. so many ways. That describe, we're, it's like we're looking in a mirror at this point. Right. Uh, so, you know, that being said, Maybe I can phrase the question this way, um, you know, because because you it you eventually turn to quote Gandalf, which I thought was was also <laughs> so so inspiring, uh, where he says, you know, it's not our part to master all the tides of the world, mm-hmm. but to do what is in us. Um, and then he goes on to talk about you know uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that you know those who are coming after us actually have a clean earth to work with. And then he says, earth to till. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and an earth to till with. And, and, the, and then he says, what weather they shall have is not ours to rule. 
And I thought it was really astute of you because on the one hand, you're noting so much of what's true about what Gandalf is saying, but then you, you do wrestle with that, that last sentence, the, the weather, uh, and yeah, whether our words actually have consequence for the future or Mm -hmm. not. So, you know, we've, we're talking about breaking bread here with the dead, but how, how does our engagement with the dead for the sake of the present actually define, if we can be so presumptuous, define and maybe even inform or even in some sense determine the future? Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful question. And it's something I think about a lot. It, it takes us back to this idea of the temporal bandwidth, right? That, that uh, Kurt Mondaugan says personal density is proportionate to temporal bandwidth. And we can extend that temporal bandwidth into the past by reading and uh, you know looking at the paintings of and listening to the music of and and studying the architecture of our predecessors, but we can't do any of those things with the future because we don't know what's coming. So uh, that's thus Lewis's point about the books of the future that would be great if we could get hold of them, <laughs> yeah. but we can't. And uh, uh, but but I think that the habit of attending to the past does help us think about the future. There's a, there's a great moment in uh, Evelyn Waugh's novel, Brideshead Revisited, where uh, uh, Charles Ryder, the, the, the narrator, he's, he, he's in an army camp and he realizes that he is just uh, over the hill from Brideshead, the great uh, estate that he had known when he was younger. And, and he climbs up the hill and he looks out across the grounds towards the great uh, house. And he says, uh, he's, he says he's looking at trees that were planted 150 years ago so that he would have the view that he has now. Mm. And it's just, it, it's, it's a wonderful idea that, that the people who planted these trees were never going to live to see them in their maturity. Right. They were never going to get the benefit of the site that he had, but they did it for future generations. And, and I think when, when, when you realize that people in the past sometimes did that, sometimes acted as best they could for us, then it makes us ask, well, what must we do? to be like that. That is, how might we think of the future and acting on behalf of uh, our children and grandchildren and and making the best world that we can or helping to shape and helping to preserve and helping to pass down to them what is valuable. And I think it's looking into the past that helps to remind us of our obligations towards the future. Um, we don't know what weather they're going to have. Um, that we can't control, but we can pass down to them some rich soil, you know, mm-hmm. cultural and literary and biblical uh, uh, soil, theological soil. We can we can make that clean and fresh for them, so that they will have something that they can grow in. Um, and, uh, and I think thinking of the more we think of the past, 
then the more we can be mindful of the future. One of the things that Barry says, Barry makes a great distinction. He says, when we hear people now who are talking about the future, you know, you, you can always go on TV or go on YouTube and get these futurists who are <laughs> talking about, you know, what's, what's going to happen in the future. And those are the people that Barry says are the projectors. They're projecting some future. Right. And his point is that, that you can project all you want to. You're not accountable for anything. Yeah. So he, he says that a, a, a healthy-minded person and a healthy-minded community doesn't project the future. It makes promises mm. to the future. And that's the difference. Yes. Right? You, that, you know, what promises do should do am i obliged to make to those who come after me mm. and i think studying the past is going to help us think more constructively and more positively and more creatively about our obligations to the future and will help us to make better promises we have been talking to alan jacobs about his terrific new book breaking bread with the dead uh, I really do think that this book uh, is is such a corrective, um, but it's not just a corrective. Uh, it, it's it's much more than that. And in so many ways, uh, I I personally benefited from it because I recognize, yeah, you know, we we do tend we do tend to be under this tyranny of a of a type of presentism. And in my experience, uh, some of the greatest moments in which I've had a peace of mind or, or even just an insight have been when I've entered into that conversation uh, with those who have come before us. But for those uh, of our listeners uh, who, who are going to pick up uh, Alan's new book here, uh, you also need to listen to what he just said. Uh, this isn't just about the past. It's not just about living in the past, so to speak. It's it's actually about so much more, the, the responsibility that our words have for tomorrow. And I can't help but but uh, just reiterate uh, so much of what he just said in terms of the promise, rather than the rather than projecting, turning to the promise. And I I think uh, that whether it's in our conversations with one another as Christians, uh, or whether it's with our conversations with the wider world, uh, this type of mindset will not only bring peace in terms of our own personal density, as, as Alan Jacobs calls it, but it just might actually enable us uh, to enter into the future in a way that is responsible and actually exhibits so much of what the Christian faith is about, uh, which is a disposition uh, of love, uh, a love that actually extends to our neighbors and, believe it or not, even our enemies. Alan Jacobs Thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Uh, what what a privilege and uh, what a great time getting to talk about these deep things. It's been a great pleasure, Matthew. Thank you so much. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcast to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.